how it lights my path, how it guides my way. And open to Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 to 12. Hannah's going to come and bring us the reading. And then I'm going to hand over to Steve. I'll pray for him. Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came and testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said to them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. Now when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, it is because we have taken no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, O oh, you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up? Nor the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up? How is it you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Thank you, Hannah. Thank you, Hannah. Steve, come. Would you like to stretch your hands out to Steve? It's hard work preparing a preach, you know. There's uh, several hours that go on, go on in the background. And it's always good to remind you that when somebody speaks in front, there's been a lot of preparation, a lot of prayer. Sometimes it can be easy. Sometimes it can be hard for those who are, your, who are preachers. So let's just thank the Lord for the word this morning and for what Steve has prepared that he would release it. Father, we thank you for our brother Steve, Lord. We thank you for this passage, Lord. We thank you what you've prepared. We thank you for the, his exercise of his intellect and his academic understanding. But thank you, it's your Holy Spirit, Lord, that rides through all of it, Lord, and speaks to us and brings truths and beautiful sense of uh, responding to you because of your word, Lord. We ask you now in Jesus' name, Lord, release it by your spirit through Steve. Amen. Go for it, Steve. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Good to be back together with you. Anybody here a good at separating things, getting things apart? Anybody here got the patience for that kind of thing? Anybody here the sort of person that's good if somebody gives you a necklace that's got a knot in it, you can tease that apart? Yeah, Joe, Joe's, Joe's not, he's vol not volunteering, but anybody else here, the sort of person that, you know, when you go into your bag to get out that computer cable, 
and your mouse cable is tied up with the USB cable, is tied up with the power lead, is tied up with the phone charger, and they're all in a complete knotty mess. You can tease them apart and get them apart and find the cable that you want without getting stressed and without getting worried and without getting... And you've got the patience to be able to do that. Some of us are great at teasing things apart, and some of us like to have things clearly defined and separated. Some of us are happy with a tangled mess. And some of us are quite happy that we're going to charge our phone and we just bring out a lump of cables, dump them down on the floor and find the right ends and plug it into our phone. And that is cool. And at the end, we just put them back into our bag at the end of it. There are all sorts of techniques that we can do to separate things apart from one another. If you've got sand mixed in with salt and you want to get the salt out of the sand, you pour lots of water on it, and the salt will dissolve into the, into the water, and the sand will remain. Easy. So it's easy to take sand out of salt, but I think all of us know, particularly from our, when we were children, or if we have ever been on a picnic with children, getting sand out of picnic is more difficult. And no child likes crunchy sandwiches. So sometimes things, we like to tease them apart and get things separate. That's quite often happened with our mind and our belief, our faith and our reason, that we've taken them apart and teased them apart and separated them. And here's a pile of reason and here's a pile of faith. People who aren't Christians like doing that. Because I say that faith has no place in decision-making, no place in what we should uh, act on, no place in any reasonable behavior. We need reason, pure, distilled reason on its own is all we should base any decision upon. So we go after reason alone. And Christians are told, what you believe you keep in private. I don't want you to talk to me about that in the public place. I don't want you to engage in that at work. You use your brain there. And if what you want to do with your faith in your private life, that's up to you, but just use your head and keep faith out of it, please. And I think in the church, we have a tendency to separate the two a little bit too, that we sometimes say what really matters is what goes on in my heart, not really what happens up in my head. And my faith is the important part, and it doesn't really matter how much I think about these things. So we encourage our faith, which is a right thing to do, but we don't always feed our minds in the same way. Theology doesn't matter. Thinking doesn't matter. Reasoning doesn't matter. What matters is what goes on in my heart. And I think what all of us have done is separated two things that should never have been separated, that always belong together, faith and reason. Not just that they belong together, they're intertwined together and they feed off each other. Partly what this Bible text is about this morning is this idea of reason and faith belonging together. Do you know, you can't really understand something unless you invest yourself in it. I think we all know that. Even a radical atheist who would say it's only your mind that's important, they're radically invested in that idea and there is some sense of faith in that particular idea that they have that is feeding their reason. It's not just pure undistilled reason. 
Anybody here started watching the new Lord of the Rings spin-off thing on Amazon? I confess I haven't, but I know that it's just come out, and the first thing has come out, and it's a big thing that people are talking about. And there's a debate that's going on amongst people who love Tolkien's writings. Is this faithful to Tolkien? Is it not faithful to Tolkien? And if you really want to know, you have to ask somebody who's an expert on the writings of Tolkien, on The Hobbit, on The Lord of the Rings, etc. And every single person who's an expert on that topic is an expert on that topic. Why? Because they love it. Because they're invested in it. Because they care for it. And that's the only reason they want to keep reading about it, thinking about it, meditating on it, discussing it, entering into discussion forums on the internet. It's because they're invested in it and they love it. You can't just have facts in our heads. It's because we're invested in something. When you want to know somebody and understand somebody, you know somebody and you understand somebody only when you invest yourselves in them. You take that bit of a risk and open up to them and take a step towards them and spend time with them, then you get to understand them. The only way you really understand somebody is by being vulnerable with them and then they become vulnerable with you and then you really see how they work. You can read a biography of somebody, you can read somebody's bio on the website and you get a bit of a picture of who they say they are, but you want to know who they are, you take a step towards them and you interact with them. Same with Jesus. I think we all need to understand who Jesus is and to understand him better. Don't we all want to do that and to know him better? How do we do that? By investing ourselves in him, by loving him, by walking with him, by sharing with him. Sometimes people say that the Lord doesn't say very much to me. Well, do people say very much to people that they don't spend much time with? You know, the more we spend time with Jesus, the more we understand what his voice is like and the more he speaks to us. It's a relational thing. So faith and understanding go together. They go together because as we invest in something, as we get passionate about something, as we believe in something, as we take a risk in something, we understand it. It's true in life. It's true in our walk with Jesus. And that's partly what this passage is about this morning, that relationship between what we understand and what we place our trust in, what we believe and what we know. We're called by the Lord to be believers who worship him with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. Second thing I think this passage is about this morning is that what you're looking at, or what you're looking for, probably, what you're looking for affects what you see. What I'm looking for affects what I see. If I'm looking for something, I'll probably find it. If I'm really not looking to find a certain thing, then I probably won't find it. It Depending on what you're looking for depends on what you will end up seeing. It seems to be reflected quite a lot in the passage this morning. What we believe about something affects how we understand it. 
We all believe about dogs that they're pack animals, that they're faithful to their, their uh, packs, and their packs are often their human communities that they're associated with. So a dog is faithful to its pack. A dog, hang, a dog hangs around with its owner. A dog doesn't tend to go off and do its own thing for very long. A dog likes to hang around with its pack and remain within its pack. So if you see a dog wandering around the streets at one o'clock in the morning on its own, the chances are that it's a stray or that it's a dog that's got lost. Yes, because dogs don't do that. They're at home in their basket or sleeping on their family's bed. If you see a cat at one o'clock in the morning wandering around the street, it's never a stray. And if you're giving it a little bit of, well, they are occasionally, but if you're giving it some milk and some food, that cat is just using you as its second stop-off point somewhere else on its rounds and getting some food for you as well as somebody else. If you see a cat going for a walk on a lead... Now, that is a little bit more unusual because that's, is that cat a prisoner that's been taken for interrogation with somebody? That's not cat behavior. What we believe about something affects how we understand it. Interpreting the same piece of information, there's an animal out on the streets at one o'clock in the morning. But it's what we believe about those animals and what we know affects how we look at them. And there are three ways that that gets picked up, I think, in the story this morning. So where are we? We're towards the end of Jesus ministering in Galilee in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, and it's what we're looking at mainly from verse 5 onwards when Jesus says, beware of the yeast or the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. It's kind of a cryptic story. It's, it's almost like a cryptic parable. There are, there are not many answers that are given and Jesus makes this strange statement and it's difficult to know exactly what he's talking about. But it's begun with Pharisees and Sadducees coming him to test him. And they asked Jesus to show them a sign from heaven. Jesus rebukes them and says that they will not be given a sign from heaven. No sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. What's interesting is that this is the, about the last things that he does up in Galilee before he comes down to Jerusalem in the Gospel of Matthew. So the next time that he interacts with them in Galilee is when? After his resurrection, when he appears in a Galilean hillside. What is the sign of Jonah? Well, it's mentioned a few chapters earlier in uh, the book of Matthew. What's Jonah famous for? Disappearing for three days and three nights and then coming back again. What's Jesus famous for? Well, many things, but dying and three days and three nights later, being back to life. So the sign of Jonah was presented before them in Galilee. And what did they do about it? Well, the majority of them didn't believe. Some did, but the majority of them didn't believe. So what Jesus actually says comes about in the end. Uh, but he says to them, an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. Then they have a little boat ride. And then Jesus suddenly says to his disciples, beware of the yeast or leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And the disciples don't really know what he's talking about because they often don't know what Jesus is talking about. A kind of cryptic conversation happens and then they go on from there. There are three lessons here about what we're looking for affecting what we're understanding. So what we're looking for affects what we see if we're looking in the wrong place. That's the first thing. The disciples were looking in the wrong place. were thinking about the wrong thing we're making the wrong set of assumptions when Jesus said something. It was a simple misunderstanding. Jesus said, beware of the 
leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And it goes on in verse 8 to say, the disciples said to one another, it's because we've brought no bread. It's because we've brought no bread. That's why he said that. Why did they say that? Why did they think that? Well, the story begins with verse 5, which sets it up for us. When the disciples reached the other side, they'd forgotten to bring any bread. So Matthew tells us, ahead of the whole of the story, it's kind of a random piece of information, they didn't bring any bread. He doesn't often tell us whether they brought any bread or not, but he tells us beforehand they didn't get any bread. So we're already in that mindset about they haven't brought any bread. That's obviously what was going on in their minds. They were thinking, we haven't got any bread. They're probably muttering, did you bring the bread? Judas, did you bring the bread? No, 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 no. James? James, I told you to go to Asda. They haven't got any bread. So that's what was going on in their minds. And when Jesus says something to them, they were thinking about what they were thinking about and heard what Jesus said in those terms. Anybody ever done that in a conversation with somebody else? It can be embarrassing or funny, depending on which side of that conversation you are sitting on when those sorts of conversations happen. But sometimes uh, this, this works very, very well with people that are particularly close to each other. One person says something. The other person, because they're thinking of something completely different, answers in a particular way because it seems to be talking about that situation. And the first person is completely bemused about what on earth is going on. That sort of thing happens all of the time in conversation and communication. It seems to be what's happening here. The disciples are thinking about what? Not what Jesus is thinking about. Jesus is thinking about the conversations he had with the Pharisees and the Sadducees just before the boat journey happened. Not that long ago. And what are the disciples thinking about? Bread. They're fixated on their own concerns. They don't have their eye on what it is that God is doing. They don't have their eye on what it is that Jesus has got his eye on. Maybe they're feeling guilty. I don't know. Maybe there's a sense of guilt within them. Oh, no, we've messed up again. We haven't got bread, have we? I knew I should have got the bread. I knew I should have done that. Maybe they're feeling guilty about something. And when we have a guilty conscience about something, when somebody says something, we think it's immediately talking about that sense of guilty conscience. When you're called to the boss's office... And you've got a guilty conscience about something, you know why the boss has called you to the office, even if it's to give you a pay rise. You know the sort of thing that I mean? If you've got a guilty conscience, you immediately turn to the negative of what somebody said. Maybe they were just feeling hungry. Maybe they were sitting there thinking, we didn't bring any bread and I'm hungry, what are we going to do? Can't ask Jesus to do another miracle. I'm like, <laughs> Peter, surely you remember to bring some pita bread, Peter. Have you got any? No. Maybe they just know that they always get it wrong. Maybe they know that time and time again, when I know that when you come to write the gospel down, Matthew, you're going to say the number of times that we got it wrong. That Jesus said to do this, and we made the wrong assumption. We maybe just do it again. Oh, here we go again. Let's just wait. We've got it wrong. It just, they were thinking about the wrong. didn't understand Jesus. And to some extent, that was beginning to move them towards, because they were making wrong assumptions about Jesus, putting them in danger of taking on board the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. We'll talk about that in a moment. But they should have been looking where Jesus was looking and thinking about the things that Jesus was thinking about. And I think for us, it's quite a simple thing to say, really. It's easy to be distracted. 
And it's easy to be fixed on and assuming things that are not where God is focusing on. And what we're looking for affects what we see. Because we're looking at a particular topic which is not where God is wanting us to look at this particular moment. I get caught up with that. I don't know about you. I can get fixated on looking at things that I think are important or that are important to me at the moment. And because they're important to me at the moment, I can get tunnel visioned about it and that's the only thing that I think about. And it's the only thing that I worry about. Sometimes it's the only thing that my relationship with God is built on for a time or a season. Does that happen to anybody else? That when something is dominant in our life, that everything, even our relationship with God, revolves around that. And we can get so fixated on it. Maybe God is asking us to take a step back and just think, where is God active in our life? What is God doing? What is God involved in at the moment? What is Jesus interested in our lives at the moment? What has Jesus been pointing out at the moment? What conversations has Jesus been having with us? And maybe the things that Jesus is saying has got something to do with the things that Jesus has been saying to us about in other things. What's Jesus been saying to us in church recently? What's Jesus been saying to us in the Bible recently? We may have forgotten it because our attention isn't there and we keep swiveling around to concentrating and looking for something else. And he's asking us to take a step back and just think, what is Jesus saying more broadly? What else is he saying? What is he interested in? But we're thinking about understandably at the moment, our financial situation. How on earth can we have the heating on? Or do we really need that much hot water in the house? How can we afford food now that it's so expensive and strange? Does anybody else notice that you go to the supermarket and what you've bought in your basket doesn't really seem to add up to the amount that it comes to at the till anymore? It's just, it's just crazy. It's, it, you, you feel that somebody has sneaked in around you in the shopping trolley and put 50 other items in your shopping trolley that you never put in there and you look and they didn't it's just the it's it's got ridiculous and we think about that we think about our health we think about our marriage we think about our children we think about that phone call we need to make tomorrow God knows about those things he already knows about those things and he's onto them Yes, he wants us to talk about them, but he knows about them and he's onto them. And not everything he's going to say to us is about those things. Sometimes when we're looking at something, or we'll hear about is about that thing. And God is asking us to look elsewhere too. Second thing. What we're looking for affects what we see when we only look on the surface of something and don't go deeper. And that's what the disciples did. That's what the disciples did on two particular occasions in Jesus' ministry, probably in more than that. They didn't think deeply enough, and they didn't meditate on it deeply enough, and they didn't understand. The disciples misunderstood Jesus. The disciples misunderstood when he said, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees, thinking he was talking about bread. And they said to one another, it's because we have brought no bread. And rather than Jesus just turning around to them and saying, no, it's not because you've bought no bread. I was talking about the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees, which is this. Jesus goes off on a detour talking about bread for a moment. There's a couple of verses in the middle where Jesus goes off on a detour. I don't know, why does he want to suddenly talk about the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000? Surely the disciples understood that. Of course they did. Of course they got the point that if Jesus wants to, he can 
get one small piece of bread and make it enough to feed 4,000 people. You don't see that sort of thing and forget it. You know that Jesus can do that. They haven't forgotten that. And Jesus says to them, becoming aware of it, Jesus said, you have little faith. You are talking about having no bread. Do you still not perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Doesn't wait for an answer. Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? He doesn't wait for an answer. How could you fail to perceive that I was not speaking about bread? Why does he talk to them about these miracles? Probably just because the opportunity was given to him by them talking about bread and it was an opportunity to talk about something that is significant. The disciples knew that Jesus could heal. They'd seen him do it so often. They brought their own relatives to him right at the beginning of the ministry. Peter's mother-in-law was healed. They'd seen other people do it. When people are healed in church, the word gets around and people bring their families and friends to, for Jesus for him to bring healing. They knew that Jesus could heal, but they looked at it on that surface level. Jesus can provide for needs. Jesus can heal. But there's a deeper level that Jesus is saying you didn't look at the deeper level. You looked at the surface. You didn't think, you didn't ask yourself, if Jesus can feed 5,000 people, then who is he? What's he doing? Why is he here? If you want to know more about this, then read John's Gospel, John's Gospel, chapter 6. John, Jesus in, in that Gospel, talks a lot after feeding the 5,000 about the significance of what he has done. But it brings back huge amounts of imagery from the Old Testament. It's this imagery of Moses as the one who fed people. God fed people with the manna through Moses. And this is one that's greater than Moses, doing the same sort of thing that Moses was doing, feeding people in the middle of nowhere with the bread. And if Jesus is therefore like a Moses, he's a greater Moses. And as Moses brought people and saved people out of Egypt, Jesus is going to save people. Jesus is doing what a king would do. Jesus is doing what a ruler would do and providing for his people. Jesus is their king. Jesus is their ruler. He's leading people. He's gathering people together. It's saying something about who he is. It's saying something about his significance. He is someone who heals diseases because this is the great moment of God bringing healing for his people. That's who Jesus is. Sometimes we're looking for just the surface stuff without letting ourselves be caught up with the things that go underneath that. Jesus is the king of all. Jesus is the one who will transform his people. Who will transform his people and bless them. In terms of specifics for us, maybe this is a little bit vaguer. I think the encouragement from the Lord is, let's think a little bit about what God is doing. And let's ask God what it is that he's doing in a particular situation. And to teach us more about himself there, so that our faith will be enriched. Not just our understanding, but our faith will be enriched as we look at God doing something in a situation. As we hear a testimony on a Sunday morning, as we've seen God do something at Revive, let's ask the Lord, what's the significance of that? What's the meaning of that? And seek something, 
Let's go to scripture and pour over scriptures. Let's talk together. Let's share together. Talk about things in, in house group. Talk to other people. Pray it through. And Lord, help me to wring out as much from this as I can in understanding you and in grasping hold of who you are so that as I understand you more, I will trust you more. And as I understand what you're trying to do, it will help me to place my trust in you more and more and more, to live more faithfully, to live more in expectation of the things that you will do. There's a third place about where we look, that what we're looking for affects what we see when we're not looking at all. And that's where we come to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and what the leaven and yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees is about. It's an odd pairing, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We may not think of it as such because we always talk about the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the New Testament and how the Pharisees and the Sadducees opposed Jesus, which they did. But it's rare that we read about the Pharisees and the Sadducees doing something together because they didn't really get on that well. And they weren't really a unit or a pair. It's normally the Pharisees and the scribes or the scribes and the Pharisees that we read about or when we get to Jerusalem, we read about the Sadducees and the rulers of the people. But we don't often read about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're different people. Very unusual pairing. And they've come in verse, six, in verse 1 to test Jesus, asking him to show them a sign from heaven. And in verse 4, Jesus rebukes them. Uh, and then when we get down to verse 6, Jesus then talks about the leaven again of the Pharisees and Sadducees, same pairing. So it must be referring back to what happened a couple of verses earlier. Must be pointing back to what happened with this challenging him. So what is this leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Well, a leaven is something that spreads. It's a bit of yeast that you put in something and it spreads around. It's, in this example, it's not a good thing. Often it's a good thing. But if you don't want yeasty bread, if you don't want leavened bread, then a little bit of leaven that gets into the bread, it's just going to spread throughout the whole bread and it's gone. For people with a nut allergy, there's no such thing as a little bit of peanut that's been put into this dish. It goes throughout the whole of the dish and that's it. The whole dish is now a dish that's got peanut in it and I can't eat it. Yes? And with something like COVID, we all remember COVID. And pray to the Lord that it doesn't force its memory upon us even more strongly in the coming months. But with COVID, when somebody has COVID, it's not just the fact that they've got COVID, but it's the fact that they can give COVID to somebody else and it can spread to somebody else. Hence, social distancing, masks, hand washing, all the other things that we've been involved in for the last couple of years. It spreads. The leaven of the um, Pharisees and Sadducees spreads. It doesn't just corrupt but it spreads. It's a corruption that spreads. It destroys. It's like that bit of moldy bread. That bit of moldy bread that just before you were going on holiday, you forgot that you left in the bread bin with a little spot of mold on. And by the time that you come back from holiday, sorry, sorry to say this, but if you open up the bag, it releases a cloud of blue into the air. You know, the kind of stuff that I mean, you know, it's gone for, it spreads. That's what the leaven, maybe we could call it the mold of the, of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So what is this mold? Well, the Pharisees and Sadducees didn't have an awful lot in common. The Pharisees believed in looking at the whole of the Old Testament as their scriptures. The Sadducees disagreed, and they only had part of the Old Testament as the scriptures that they relied upon. 
The Pharisees thought that the resurrection was something that was happening or something that was going to happen and looked towards the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees would believe that angels would come and speak to people. Sadducees were less convinced of that. Pharisees were mainly up in the north, mainly up in the area around Galilee. That's where their power base was. The Sadducees weren't. The Sadducees were mainly encamped around in Jerusalem. That's where their power base was. The Pharisees were those who were experts in the law. They were experts in the scriptures. They were experts in understanding the meanings of texts, understanding what this particular law went. There were debates that went between the Pharisees back and forth about the meaning of this particular word and the meaning of that particular word and how much dill, mint and cumin you should tithe and all this kind of stuff. Sadducees were the priests. Sadducees were the priestly class associated with the temple. Sadducees were the ones with the real power. They were the ones with political power, with wealth and aristocracy. Pharisees weren't. They didn't really have a lot in common. There's one thing they did have in common, though. I wonder if you can think what that is. They didn't like Jesus very much. That's the main thing that they didn't have in common. You know, they did have in common. They didn't like Jesus very much. They were convinced, both of them, that Jesus was up to no good, that Jesus was going to destroy Judaism of their day, and that Jesus was trouble. They didn't like Jesus that much. So it may well have been up in Galilee that this is mainly Pharisees with a small delegation of Sadducees who've been sent up from Jerusalem to find out who this troublemaker is. But together, they've got a dislike for Jesus and their mind is made up already that Jesus is not the Messiah, that Jesus is a troublemaker, that Jesus is up to no good and Jesus must be stopped. That's their assumption and their mind is made up already. So they come to Jesus with a test to trap him and ask for a miracle. Nothing Jesus can say, nothing Jesus can do will change their mind. They're not even looking for something. And that affects what they will see. Craig Keener, a biblical scholar, has a great phrase to describe the Pharisees and Sadducees in this case. He talks about them having a Toxic cynicism. Toxic cynicism. It's, it's a disbelief. It's a superiority. It's an arrogance. And it looks at the things about Jesus and says, I'm not having anything to do with that. That's just rubbish. And it spreads and it burns and it hurts and it does no good to people that are around. That's why it's 11. Jesus says, beware of that. Jesus said to his disciples, you of little faith, why are you talking about having no bread? Having warned them to be careful of the toxic cynicism of the Pharisees and Sadducees because they wouldn't even entertain thoughts about who Jesus was, he knew that the disciples were in some ways at risk of going in that direction if they could look at the feeding of the 5,000 and not think about who Jesus was and not be willing to engage with that. They'd maybe taken the beginning to take the first step down that road, perhaps. None of us is beyond it. None of us are beyond toxic cynicism. None of us are beyond having already made up our mind before we come to hear what Jesus has said. Why would Jesus warn us to beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees if we're beyond it? None of us are beyond it.
So I think the Lord is calling upon us this morning to beware of where we have a closed mind. Beware of poison like the new atheism that spreads around with a pre-assumption that Jesus is up to no good. It's very difficult to persuade people who've already made up their minds about something. We should keep praying and we should keep asking God to break through. Of course we do. But it's very, very difficult when a mind is closed and won't look. Because what we believe affects what we understand. And if we believe that there's nothing there, then it will affect what we're understanding. Beware the hard heart. Beware making a decision before looking at things properly. Beware the cynicism of others. Oh boy, let's beware our own cynicism that arises up in our hearts. I'm not going to ask you to put your hands up. But let me just ask, anybody here good at cynicism? I can do cynicism pretty well. You may have never noticed. I can be fairly cynical, and I know that trait within myself, that I can regard something cynically. And the Lord is calling us, beware of that. Beware of that cynicism that rises up. Beware of encouraging others in that cynicism. Beware of feeding off that cynicism. Cynicism is rife in places on social media these days. Calling into question what's happening in the establishment. Calling into, It's a trendy, popular thing to do, to be cynical about stuff. Beware of that in our relationship with the Lord, of what that can do for us. So let me bring us back to that tangle of wires that we had at the beginning of our charger and of our phone charger and of our connecting lead for this and our mouse and all the other wires that we've got in our bag. And let's remember that our faith and our understanding go together and that what we look for affects what we find and what we see. And let's pray for the Lord to help us to be open to what he is saying and doing to seeing where he is acting and to taking that step back to see with a bigger picture and to get rid and purge ourselves from pre-decisions about what God can do or what God can't do and that cynicism that can lodge within us but to delight in what God is saying and to think about it more and to feed our minds more knowing that our faith will increase let's pray together Lord, we want to thank you that you are the God of all. The God who releases goodness into your world. The God that brings healing. The God that brings life. The God that feeds, that can take a small number of loaves of bread and fish and feed thousands of people. And who does that because he is redeeming, saving, leading people into life. The captain of his people, the Lord of his people and the one who has risen from the dead. Thank you that you have risen from the dead. And as we've gazed upon that in whatever way that we've come face to face with that, we have seen you. I thank you, Lord, that you are risen from the dead and that you raise faith within us. We pray for our brothers and sisters. We pray for ourselves. Raise more faith within us, we pray. And help us to be people of faith and trust towards you. And help us to be people whose hearts and minds are open to you. Lord, we give to you those situations that we are worried about. 
Lord, we bring to you this morning those situations that we are worried about and we name them in our hearts, we name them in our minds and we lay them before you. We lay before you these worries that are life and death to us in many cases. We lay these things before you and pray, Lord, would you deal with those things? Would you deal with those things and keep dealing with those things and give us wisdom to know what we should do and would you intervene and help? But Lord, would you help us to take our eyes beyond those, to look to you, beyond those things, to look to what you are saying to us, the other things you are saying to us, that we will not miss out on the words that you are speaking to our lives because we're so caught up looking at one thing. And would you speak to us, Lord, more broadly and speak to us around those things? And help us never to close off to you. Protect us from hard hearts. Protect us from closed minds. Protect us from prejudging who you are. Protect us from cynicism and lack of belief and just not looking and not caring. In Jesus' name, amen. Let your lead.